Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broadest sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. I think it's fair to say that from a global perspective we are living through uncertain times. In particular, I hope as a listener to this podcast, you are asking questions about what to eat, where to purchase our food, and how our food choices are impacting the environment and world around us. While sometimes these are complicated questions, what's been inspirational about many of the podcast conversations I've now had is how, despite the politics and complexity, many food and drink producers are just getting on with it and making a big difference to their local communities. As this week's guest, Andrew Parry Norton, puts it, what's on your doorstep is the most important thing. Once you get that right, it spreads from there. Now, Andrew's lucky. He happens to have the beautiful landscape of the New Forest literally on his doorstep. As a commoner, as well as a farmer, his animals can truly range free. Through heathland and ancient woods, sometimes they range a bit too freely, as you will hear. In this programme, we explore the peculiarities of commoning history. We also discover how, and even more fascinatingly, why we are seeing the return of regional native breeds, such as ruby red cattle and saddleback pigs, rather than the influx of larger continental breeds. It makes good business and environmental sense, especially now that the commoners have their own shared brand, the New Forest Mark. In essence, to support a more artisan, kinder, traditional approach to farming, Andrew needs to charge around 10% more and supply more directly to the end consumer. Is this the way other regions could go? I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Andrew Perry Norton, thank you so much for sparing the time on the podcast today. Very much appreciated. Uh, Here to chat all things uh, commoners, I guess, and and farming. But can you just say where on planet Earth are we, please, Andrew? Yeah, well, we're in the um, in the New Forest, a place called Cadnam. We're sort of down a little dead end lane in the middle of nowhere. And uh, yeah, we're surrounded by forests. We are, yeah. yeah. Luckily, because it's pouring it down with rain, we are sat in your kitchen, aren't we? Which we is are. very we, nice. We've had Thank a good trip out, but it we was have. a bit wet. It's very, very muddy and soggy out there. Yeah, yeah so but, it's not uh, nice. I'm afraid the poor cattle at the moment are sort of wallowing around in it at the second. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. But the pigs don't mind, I suppose. They pigs are right. Pigs yeah. are okay. They reckon that um, pigs need a lot of water when out of the forest. So acorns yeah. and pigs and water go very well together. Excellent. Well, that's like they're a lucky year. <laughs> so, um, I'm a big fan of a new forest. I love it, but a lot of people listening probably uh, or maybe have heard of it, but not been here. Can you just describe the forest a little bit? Because it's pretty eclectic, isn't it? It's got ancient woodlands, it's got farmed areas, but just yeah, what is the new forest? Yeah, it's it's, it's a very large area. Um, originally, I suppose a lot of people know it was set up by William the Conqueror as its own sort of personal hunting area. But actually, where we are, Sales, we're on the, what we call the Northern Commons, the Bramshaw Commons of the New Forest. Um, so we we are actually what we call manorial waste. The New Forest itself was originally set up and that part of it was called the Crown Land. So that was part technically owned by the Crown. But where we are at the moment on the manorial waste, we are actually owned by our local lords of the manor. Um, in this particular area, 
We had um, Warren's estate, which was part of Crossway Air's estate, a big estate next to us, big farming estate. And then another part of it as well was a place called Paulton's estate, which again was another huge farming estate in its time. And the Diocese of Winchester, who owned quite a big track of it. So the ground where we are, where we're surrounded by on the commons, we were actually originally here before the existence of the new forest, before the creation by William the Conqueror. Right. Interesting. So how long ago was that, William the Conqueror? I'm showing my um, of history. Well, yeah, but is it, uh... We came across in 1066. Okay. So... And I believe the new forest was created around about 1084, 86, oh, around about that thing. Amazing. Now. So yeah, the commons... a thousand years ago. Yeah, so the commons themselves were probably in existence, few people reckon, two or three hundred years before that date as well, the commons were about. Okay. And and by when we say commons, they were they were used in essence for livestock even back then. Yeah, they, they, they were, were basically land, manorial waste. They, they were generally, as a rule, poor ground that was not suitable for farming. So the topsoil was always very thin. And um, all the local farms, some small sort of, even some of the small houses, had the right then to turn out their animals on that bit of waste ground. Right. And that that was granted to them by the lords of the manor at the time to be able to use that okay. and put their animals out. It's not a great sounding name, manorial waste, isn't it? If you told me that, not in this context, I presume it was like a tip or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it sounds like uh, something a bit of a city, doesn't it, really? Well, when you think how beautiful <laughs> it is, you've just taken me for dry. It's absolutely stunning, isn't it? I yeah. suppose if you're going to take some yeah. wasteland, this is the kind of wasteland to live in because it is it's beautiful. It is. I mean, it's say so that the ground itself is 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 poor. It's very acidic. Right. Um, a lot of it's on sand. Um, and it's very, very thin topsoil, so it wouldn't be much good for farming in any other way. Okay. But for, you know, And grazing. that's just this bit, but across the new forest in its entirety, there are areas that are good for It, it changes. Farming. Yeah, you, you've, you've, like you say, you, you've got the, um, the ancient ornamental woodland, you know, the big oaks and beech woodland. You've got what we call the lawns, which is the areas of grass. In the yeah. forest, they're called lawns. Right. Um, you've got sort of more commons in different areas of the forest as well. Um, the heathland itself is is apparently more rare than the uh, the Amazon rainforest lowland heathland. Really? Yeah, there's that few few acres of it. Wow. Okay. Across across the UK. Across the UK. Uh, yeah. Well, and and well, worldwide. Yeah. Worldwide. It's, it's that unique. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's now been given national park accreditation as well. How long ago was that? Um, Frank, it's, been, it's been a few. Uh, I would few. say probably good. 15 years ago now, I thought okay. perhaps, perhaps even longer. Right. I've probably got that wrong, but probably yeah. even longer. It's all right. It seems, no, to be, it seems to be around no, for quite no, some time no, yeah, now. No, no BBC uh, fact-checking going on. <laughs> and, and is it particularly uh, unique, just quickly, uh, you know, from a, from a country perspective, because we've got the Lake Districts and stuff like that, yeah. this idea of, of, of commoners kind of land, is that something that's replicated across the country? Or? It, yeah, I mean, Dartmoor and Exmoor have, have got sort of similar. Right. I think the New Forest, though, it, it, it's thrived and continued a lot longer. Um, I believe there's sort of 700 plus commoners in the forest, okay. and um, but yeah, it's, it's it's quite. What we've done here is is much more unique to this particular area. You won't get anywhere as much. I wouldn't have thought in Exmoor, Dartmoor, up country, really. Uh, and why is that? Why is it so unique? I think it's it's something that that's remained within the families within the forest. Well, that's not to say is that that somebody could purchase a property and then start commoning if it's got commoning rights to it. But there's been families within the forest that have carried on that tradition, really, from, from generation to generation. And we're very proud to be commoners. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of us have other jobs, not just commoning. So you've got other people that are everyday jobs going out to work and just do commoning as a part-time sideline to that. Takes quite a bit of dedication if you don't if you're doing it part time. It does take a long time. Yeah, and the benefit then of of commoning from the forest perspective is it's helping manage the ecosystem, is it? So this is a symbiotic relationship it between is. the commoners and the forest. There's there's a, a lot of plants and wildlife that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for commoning. Yeah. Um, 
the commons themselves and, and, and the forest wouldn't look anywhere like it was. You wouldn't be able to walk your dog through it if it right. wasn't for the commoning animals that are out there. So it's very important that commoning continues. I think the National Park and other bodies as well have realised that now uh, for quite some time and have done their best to encourage commoning and to keep commoning going. Um, there's numerous organisations. I'm a member of the Commonwealth Defence Association. And we're very proud of how our heritage and what we do. And we're determined that commoning will continue. So what we try and do today is set up things for the future to ensure that commoning still carries on right. and doesn't die out. Yeah. And and the benefits of it then, I suppose, are this is partly a financial thing, I guess. Is it the rights to use the land for animals in the fact... Uh, I suppose part of me wants to think the barriers of entry are lower because you don't need uh, to go and buy a farm. But in reality, you do because you need the land yeah. anyway. At the end of the day, though, I mean, what you could do, I mean, you're more than entitled to go and rent some land somewhere that has right. commoning rights attached to it okay. and start like commoning in that way. It's commoning, though, isn't as straightforward and simple, maybe, as, as just turning animals out. I think you've got, to, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to have some idea of, of, of your stock and conditions and how things, things develop. Things can rapidly go wrong. If, uh, if you don't keep an eye on your animals. Yeah. And you've got a sense of duty to them. You've got to look after your animals. You've got to see them every day. And that's quite a commitment, going out, looking for your animals every day. They could be absolutely anywhere. Yeah. You know, well, you've just demonstrated. It's, it's just a fair. To a part. I think you said it was 2,000 acres. Yeah, the, uh, the it's, it's some big at. areas of land. Yeah. And you've got to find your animals. And you've got to make sure they're okay. Okay. So it's not that it's... You know, again, in the new forest specifically, I guess, it's not that they're completely unrestricted. There are presumably fences, cattle grids in certain places, but you're talking about quite big swathes of area where the animals can roam around yeah. as they wish. I mean, I, if my cow wanted to go from here, they could go from here, probably walk a good 20-odd miles really? in a straight line without any problem whatsoever. That's awesome. Yeah, they could just keep going. Under the main roads, like the, we have the A31 quite close, we have yeah. called underpasses which is the same as a pedestrian underpass, right. where the cattle and animals can move underneath the road and go to the next block of land. So there are specific ones for the animals? Yeah, yeah. And they could just keep going if right. if they had that mind to. We had we bought some new sheep a couple of years ago and um, we turned them out amongst our other sheep. And because they weren't from the area, they weren't used to the particular area, these half a dozen sheep took off and they kept going. And I lost them. I lost them for probably a good couple of months really? until I had a phone call from a farmer near Salisbury, which is probably about 12, 15 miles away from here. Is that all it is? I thought it was further, but wow, yeah. gosh. And his sheep were in his uh, in his back garden. Really? He'd found the sheep. And that's the problem. If, if they're not used to the forest and used to that area, yeah. they got no sense of where they should be and they'll just keep walking. Right. Interesting. How did he know they were yours? They got, you got your phone oh, got it. Yeah, no, they got it. Yeah. yeah, they had tags <laughs> around awesome. the necks. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Yeah. Sheep, what's your number? Yeah. Yeah, a bit like yeah. Paddington Bear with a the, with the sign on the neck. No, they had um, they got ear tag numbers, right? Um, which are registered to us, so we have our own flock number. Right. So by reading the flock number, you can then ring up DEFRA and they can tell you where the sheep are. Okay, so every commoner has their own sort of number or tag. Well, that, or that's, that's UK-wide. Yeah. Every, okay. Everybody in the UK yeah. has their own, own flock number. Right. Um, sheep that we put out in the forest, the same with cattle, have what we call a marking tag. So we pay an annual fee every year to turn the animals out. And the adjuster, which is the person responsible for your welfare animals in your area, so will come out and what he does, he'll put a tag in your cattle's ear with your own number on it for that year and a set colour. So each tag has a colour to it 
so you know your fee's been paid for that year. Okay. And that animal then has an individual number that's obviously registered to you as well. So like car tax, you can tell from a distance yeah. that that's yeah, this year's... Yeah, they've all got the same colour tag in, so they know your fee's been paid. And, and that, that would change every year, that tag? colour changes every year. So every year, all the animals come in, um, the adjuster turns up, and we go through them all, we cut the old tags out, and it just pops back in the same hole in the year, right. a new colour tag, yeah. and you know you paid your fee then for that year. Okay, and this is before they are allowed to go out onto the, the common land, in essence, not not if they're on your own farm? or Yeah, if they're on your own farm, it's not a problem, but if you exactly. want to turn out. Yeah. So we, we do it every year at the same time. He turns up, all the animals are in, and we just go through the whole lot. He's busy, isn't he? Is that, is it, is it, is it pretty simple. So how does this work? You can't, you don't leave your animals out all year round? Is it certain times of the year? What's the... We, we have the right to. We, right. We, we, can, we can leave them out. Um, I personally feel that, I mean, this time of year, there isn't much out there. The grass isn't growing now. Um, my cattle mean too much to me to see them start losing condition. So I, I bring them in. It's easier to manage. I know where they are. Um, also, we carve during the winter months as well, and we lamb at the winter months too. So I've got them all in in one go. I can look after them. And then when the grass starts growing again, fingers crossed, April, May, Yeah. not like we had a few years ago, when the grass starts growing then, they can go back out in the forest, and there's forage out there for them. Okay, so th when you bring them back this time of the year, then what do they eat? They, they, their diet changes, presumably. Yeah, well, basically what it is, they're, they're on. We make silage um, on some of the local fields, bring that that, that back in. I also um, buy a, a local feed that's made up of wheat and barley, sort of mixture with, with a few minerals put into it as well. So they're back on sort of hard feed as well. I'd like to give them a little bit of extra food because I say we're coming up to carving. Um, a bit strenuous on the animals, so I want to make sure they're in top condition right. when carving takes place. And I'm showing my ignorance a little bit here, but you kind of you hear some stuff around. Uh, I suppose the traditional uh, beef growing is 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 uh, cows in a barn and they're fed grains and, and stuff mm. like that. Is that do you not use that kind of style of feed? Do they still eat grains, or is that something you actively avoid because their diet is generally natural? C the rest of the cows time? are ruminants. Yeah, they 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 say they will eat grains, um, but naturally, obviously, grass is is the best food for them. So I, I would say predominantly my cattle are fed probably 80% of the year. They just pasteurise that on grass, on the forest, or on the farm at home. So do the few couple of months are in for the winter, then they do go on silage. But again, it's all local made silage. Mm -hmm. I do just say top them up a little bit with the extra wheat and, and barley crushed and add that to them as well for their diet, just for running up to calving. Yeah. Um, and that just keeps them going. A bit, bit, bit of extra energy mm, yeah. before, the, before the little ones arrive. And then, so this this concept of uh, of commoners, does everybody have the, well, A, A, how do you become one, I suppose? Yeah. And then I'm right in saying that people have different rights. So it's not always you can put your animals on the land. Some of it, I read some stuff about firewood, for example, which I found it really handy because yeah. I've got a wood burner. But can you just explain how that... Yeah, well, the, the, the rights do vary slightly. Um, as I said earlier on, because we're on, we're on manurial waste, we have slightly different rights to the crown lands. So the lands owned by the crown. So our rights were granted to us by our lords of the manor at the time. So we have the rights. We have the rights to turn out sheep, which a lot of commoners don't have that right. That's quite unusual. There's only about two or three of us that could do that. What? Why? Why specifically sheep? Um, because again, it was granted to us by our lords of the manor at the time. So it was just purely. It was what that farmer at that particular point probably wanted. Okay. So he wanted to turn out sheep. Um, we have the right to pasture, so we put cows out and ponies out and that sort of thing. We have the right to panage, but panage in the crown lands only exists for maybe a couple of months on the crown land. We have the right to turn up pigs all year round. 
so we don't have to stick to the particularly the panage season. Okay, and out. just a lot of people won't know what panage is. I only do because I knew I was coming to see oh, you, right, so okay. I thought I'd better not look like a complete idiot. But <laughs> yeah. this is this is eating acorns basically. It is, yeah, yeah. Basically, what it is, the the acorns drop in the autumn, and um, and then the pigs are turned out to eat the acorns because the acorns are poisonous to ponies. Right. So the pigs are out there doing a job, clearing up the acorns. Um, so yeah, so they have that right as well. We have a right to to say turn out all year round. Yeah. The only thing is I'd, I'd say about that is that, that on the commons, there isn't the food all year round. I, right. I turn up pigs for the autumn because obviously you've got the acorns and we've got the beach masts and that sort of thing. Um, but I do bring mine in. Okay. Um, the spin-off from that is that the pork is just quite amazing. Yeah. Um, we still have to pay a marking fee for turning out, so we still pay... So how long do you leave them out in the forest one generally? Well, mine are probably out for about two months, three months at the okay. most. Yeah. Um, I'm, if I can find them, I need to bring something very soon now, actually. Really? They're ready for Christmas as well. Okay. Um, but and when you say if you can find them, can that take time sometimes? Or? Pigs, yeah. I, some groups of pigs will hang around. Um, and I've got most of mine in, but there's six of them I put out probably a couple of months ago. And they seem to have just—I don't know where they've gone, but they've just gone to the clappers somewhere. But really? but someone will ring up. I'm bound to get a call at some point to say they're over here. Yeah, and I can go and pick them up and bring them back. So local people will just know if they're in the wrong spot. Or something. Yeah, we, we tend to. A lot of the commoners help each other out. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes a, a sheep will come in from my neighbour. You know, my bar sheep and that sort of thing. And a quick phone call or a cow or a pony. Um, we just we tend to look out for each other's stock. Okay. Really, is there any is there a problem ever with um, I suppose either uh, getting eaten attacked or, or poaching or anything like that does that tend to happen or? we we've had we've had a few instances over, over the years um we had a spot of bother with, with somebody out with with, with dogs um right. chasing sheep down um it, it is a very few minority it really is very very small but we've we've had a few issues just lately but unfortunately people end up in the wrong place at the wrong time it people need to i think to understand more about livestock and how they react Dogs tend to be a bit of a problem when people let the dogs run loose. And it's not necessarily what you do with your dog. It's what someone's done with their dog prior to you turning up with your, your animal. If a dog's chased the cattle that have got cow with calves with them, and then you turn up with your dog on the lead, the, the cows are all stirred up from being made aggressive by their dog chasing them. So I think what we're trying to say is to a lot of people now, and we've got a poster campaign going at the moment, is if you see cattle on the forest, keep your dog on a lead, but give them a really wide berth. Don't please don't walk through them. Just yeah. go around them. Um, and secondly, if you were unfortunate enough that a cattle did come towards you, let your dog go. Your dog can outrun the cows any day. Right. If you can possibly slip the lead off the, off your dog, let a dog run on, and the cows will leave you alone. Okay. It's purely the, the aggressiveness towards the dog, but yeah. you don't know what's happened to them prior to you turning up. No. I'm laughing, imagining my dog, who's utterly terrified, really, of most animals he eats in the forest because he's a because he's a he's a complete and utter softy. Um, so going back then, you were you were explaining to you, you've got particularly good rights then yeah, because of so, where so, you are, but, yeah. but that's not always the case. No, I mean basically, we I say we've got the right to pasture sheep, to put up pigs all year round, um, estovers. Um, we're allowed to go and collect firewood. Okay. Um, that's where the old expression comes from: hooker by crook. In in days gone by. You used to be able to go out with, with a hook or a crook and you could pull down dead branches. Right. And as long as you were able to carry that mount back, you were allowed to keep it. Right. And that was our every right, hour. Right oh. <laughs> yeah, constantly backwards yeah. and forwards. But that was uh, yeah, that was um that was where the hook by crook expression came from. Okay. But I think you had to be very careful in those days because if you're caught taking down a live branch, you'd probably end up on a one-way trip to Australia. Wow. Um, okay. back in those days. Yeah. But that yeah, was one of the easy. rights. We have the right to um turbury, collect turf. 
Okay. Um, you, which you use for what? A fire. Okay, fire so the, the sort of... be honest with you, I don't think the National Trust would be particularly very impressed the way started going out and digging holes <laughs> all over the place. So although we do have that <laughs> right. And the other right we have as well is the right to Marl. Um, to Marl? Marl, yeah. M-A-R-L. Okay. It's, what, what it is, the forest itself is a quick geology lesson. It's, it's built on a, a syncline of chalk. The Isle of Wight being one end of, of the chalk and Pepperbox Salisbury Hill area is the other end of it. And it's a big dish-like shape. But within that dish, you've got layers of sands and gravels built up on top of it. The forest itself is, is very acidic. And as probably as a gardener knows, if your garden's very, very acidic, you can only grow a small selection of plants within that soil. But either end of the forest, where the chalk becomes close to the surface, you get a mixture of the clays and the chalks together, which is very alkaline. So the idea was that you could go and dig this alkaline mixture up bring it back and put it on your fields to try and go for a more neutral type pH. Okay. And then you grow a much wider variety of crops. Your grass grows better. So that was a right to mile to go and collect this right. and, and put it on your fields. Uh, again, not one that you use a lot. Uh, no, I don't think they were very <laughs> impressive. I started digging holes right. again. But yeah, but yeah that, that was quite a common thing. Okay. But on the crown land, where there's also commoners, you yeah. may get lesser rights. You do. And it, what it, defines those? Is it is it related to the property that you purchase within that space? How are these well, passed on? Ye years and years ago, it was the chimney breast. The, right. the, the rights are common were attached to your chimney breast. Okay. So what you did, if you decided your house was getting too old and dilapidated, you can knock the whole house down, but you had to keep your chimney breast. So you rebuilt your house around that chimney breast. There's an example not far from here, a place called God's Hill, when there's a chimney breast stuck out in the garden. Right. And they built the commoners built a new house, but kept the old chimney breast to retain his rights. So it was the location so, of the chimney breast that was important, or the number no, of no, them, just, or just just having one. Because because you think about the... the chimney breast was your your centre of your house. It was right. your warmth, your cooking, everything went to it. <laughs> so your commoner rights was attached to that. In um, it was revised, and don't give, I think I think it was around about the nine the nineteen sixties. There was a commoner revised act, but it was moved on to the land. Right. So the commoner rights were then attached to your land now. Okay. And the property, not not just to your chimney breast at that point. So basically, if, if you went out and bought a piece of land or a cottage that had commonly rights to it, you can turn out. Um, there's a register, and I believe it's kept, it, it, funny enough, years ago at a little village church near Lindhurst. But I think that's been moved back now to the Verderer's office at Lindhurst. But you can go there and you can find out what rights are attached to your property and what you can do. I love these quirks of uh, English eccentricity. It's great, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. amazing that all of that history exists. So would this be um, loads of properties in the forest would have commoners' rights, or is this quite rare? Is it a small percentage? It, it, it is a small percentage. Right. Um, it's it's, a, it's cottages that, that, that were land that was around at the time when, when these rights... Okay. William Conqueror um, introduced some pretty draconian laws within the forest itself. And later on, it was trying to be watered down so these rights were given to some of the local landowners to sort of try and appease them slightly. Right. Um, so the motivation was he rocked up basically, wanted to take over a load of this land as his sort of like little hunting paradise not far from London, is that story in essence? Yeah. And, yeah. and therefore, to appease the locals, he gave them rights, which were rights not, they not were... Not William the Conqueror. I think if, I, if I'm talking about it in my history, make sure I'm right about this, but it wasn't William the Conqueror. Um, it was watered down later on. Okay. William the Conqueror himself imposed the, see, these, these quite strict rules. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of them that's that, that still you can still see the evidence now in in the Verderer's Court, which I can tell you about in a second. About the Verderer's, I'm sure you're going to ask me in a sec. But the Verderer's Court, and there's a stirrup on the wall, hanging on the wall up there, and 
what it was, William the Conqueror was so worried about his deer that any dog that was too big to pass through the stirrup would have one of its claws removed off its front feet to lame it, basically. Wow. So it couldn't, couldn't kill the deer. Um, it's harsh. So, yeah, so that, that was the they, rules. It was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, if, if you found killing a deer or damaging a tree, you were hung for it. Wow. Okay. Whereas there were people here at that time who would have historically had rights, would have had animals out on the land and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, he came along with some big changes. Yeah, and then and later, some yeah. of those things were given back, in essence. Yeah. yeah. And what was the court you mentioned? That Ver- Ver- oh, the Verderous Court. What's that? Like? Yeah, well, well, basically what it is, we have our, we have our own court system okay. in the forest. Um, we have elected what they call Verderers. So we, we have some that are elected by the commoners themselves. We have a certain number of verderers that are appointed from DEFRA, the, the ministry. We have an official verderer that runs it. Now, he's appointed by the Crown. At the moment, it's Lord Manners. And this court sits once a month in Lindhurst in a very ancient courtroom. Um, lots of old oak timber and bits and pieces. But if you have anything that you want to go to court to talk about, so it could be from fencing to marking fees, you can do a presentment. You can stand up in court and explain your case to the verderers, who will then consider it and then come back and reply for you. Um, it's verderers, I think, is, is basically comes from the word green, obviously with the Norman okay. word of it. Yeah. And uh, traditionally, yeah, it was to look after the forest. Yeah. They can pass bylaws, they can enforce bylaws within the forest itself. And th- their main primary role is to look after the forest, to protect the forest and okay. commoning as well. Yeah, and and who are they looking on after the forest on behalf of this? Because it's it's the end of the day. I, th- I think long back in history, they, they were probably there to look after it for the crown purposes. Right. Um, but gradually, as, as time has gone by now, they're, they're look after our interests as commoners. So if I got okay. a problem, yeah. um, if I got a boundary fence where my animals keep getting through, I can go there and, and, and make a presentment about it and say, look, I need this fence fixed. Um, if my pigs kept getting getting out on the A36 or anywhere like that onto a main road again, that's something I go and talk to them about. They're not actually allowed to talk in the court. The bench sit there. So you stand up and you make your presentment. Um, and then they get a reply back, what they're going to do about it later. <laughs> again, quirks, quirks of the law. Oh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to go to. Yes. Yeah. It's um public can go in there, yeah. look on the internet, you can find right. it when the Verderers Court sits. Really? And the public can go and sit in the benches and just listen to what's going on. Amazing. Um, we had the panic season extended this year. Um, and again, a presentment was made at the Verderous Court because of the amount of acorns that were dropping. Because the Verderous Court defines the panic season. So they say it's going to go from this date to that date. Well, because the amount of acorns that was dropping this year, we need an extension to it. Right. And the Verderous are the people that will grant you an extension. Okay. Because most people would only be allowed to let their pigs out. On the crown lands, yeah. You've season. only got a certain period of time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So the voters court the people that actually authorised you to keep them out longer. Okay, good. Well, that gives a great context to the overall. So coming back to you specifically, how long have you lived here? This was your father's yeah, farm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's always been the family. Yeah. Um, I've been sort of involved with farming virtually my life. Did a bit of building work. And you're what, 28 now? Or? Sorry? You're what, 28? Are you? <laughs> well, that's very generous of you <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I think I'm weathering well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah no, we've been here. Well, say I've been in the forest for nearly 50 years now. Right. Um, and grandparents as well, or just you started with your parents? No, 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 the, the, on that side of it. Yeah, the family, grandparents all the way through, really. Right, okay. Um, 
it's it's the comedy itself has has, has gone up and down with the generations. You know, it, it's it's quite popular now. Um, we had a spell when we struggled to make money. Yeah. And I was told that I'd make more money if I bought myself a digger and go and worked on building sites, putting houses up. Yeah. But I think you can't get away from it. Once you into commoning and farming, it, it, it never really leaves you. Mm. It's always going to be there and it's always something that, that comes up. And, and I worked for a while in, in Somerset and I took on a lease of a farm in Somerset. You know, I tried to get away for a while and, and I just drifted back into it again. And, Lured back to the yeah, forest. Yeah, and I just, there's nothing else in the world like it. Doesn't yeah, matter what else you do, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic job and, and it's, you know, it's everything. Mm. It is everything. an incredible uh, place. And you just took me for a, a lovely drive in your little uh, mule and we ended up in this, yeah, beautiful, huge, uh, I don't know, what was that area called? It's just Yeah, out on, well, we call it Bat is Stagbury. It's right. um, literally, it's a, it's a huge area of, of heathland out there. Um, that we turn the animals out on. But just going out there on a, on a, a summer's morning when the cattle, looking for your cattle, with the sun coming up, nobody about, and it's just the most incredible scenery. Yeah. It really is quite fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. So what animals do you uh, do you have then? Well, we, we turn out, we've got the cattle. Yep. Um, we've got a breed called Ruby Reds okay. that, that come from Devon. I met them. I'll, pop, pop, I'll put a photo on the website. Very yeah, handsome they, chap they, saw they, us on the way around. Oh, they, 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 they are so suited to our environment. Really? They're docile, they're quiet, right. very, very hardy, um, and they do fantastically on, on, on the heathland. They they survive on it so well. And these aren't your, um, I don't know, the, the, the stereotypical image of a cow is your black and white kind of uh, Frisian, I think. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Uh, yeah. What's the yeah. difference? Clearly colour. They're, they're, they're obviously native. I mean, Frisians are, are originally Dutch. Right. They're native. And they're much more hardy. They're, yeah. they're a beef animal, obviously. The, the Frisian side of it's a dairy, but they're beef animals. And they, they put on layers of fat through the meat. So they're not, they don't just develop a, a, a sort of layer of fat over the top of the meat. They lay it all the way through. And it just makes cooking so much better. Okay, and this is a, a what do you call them? A ruby, ruby red, Devon ruby, ruby red. Yeah. yeah, when I I don't think when I go into the supermarket and I'm in the meat aisle that you see mm. ruby red specifically mentioned. Mm. You see Angus. Uh, exactly. Yeah, there, there there is a big trend towards Angus, which is right. again a fantastic beef animal. Yeah. Um, but I I swear by that that if you can get hold of ruby red Devon, and if you look on the website, you just type that in. Yeah. Um, there's a fantastic website for the breeders on there. Yeah. And they, they list the places where you can actually buy it from. Okay. There's a mail order service as well. Really? And it would be specified if it was ruby, because a lot it of would. animals, I understand, go to the abattoir and you don't really know. People presume yeah. they're buying beef, I guess. But yeah. but you, if you buy from your local butcher and it's a ruby red, is that a premium? Would they specify that? Or would, they, would it often just be beef? No, I mean, there's a butcher that I supply down in a place called Wimborne. And he he only stocks ruby red in his shop. He won't stock any other meats in there. Okay. And you'll see it will advertise all over the place. But I say if you look on the website on on the uh, on the cattle breeders, the Devon Cattle Breeders website, you'll give you a whole list of all the places you can go to to pick this meat up from. And I swear that if you try a piece of that, a steak of that, you won't go back to anything else. Right. It really is quite something actually. But the reason that they don't dominate the beef market is, is are they not, because I guess a lot of our beef comes from the intensive, yeah. in a barn, 15 months is what they live, you know, fed grain. Do they not like that? Not that any cow likes not it. Not at all, no. The, the, the ruby reds get more common. Um, once upon a time, perhaps sort of 20 years ago, you didn't really hear of them. No. But there's a trend now back towards native breeds. Back in the 80s, we had the, the March of the Continentals. We had the Scimitar breeds coming through, the Limousin, and huge muscle cattle. 
Um, really sort of like a like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, really. It's huge, great things. Okay. And that's why they were popular, and because of their size. Because of the size. But the problem was you lost the flavour. The other thing as well is that you had to poke so much food into them. Right. Constantly giving them food to keep up that size of that bulk. And there was no flavour. You had these great big, very lean joints that didn't cook well. Had a tendency to go tough if you weren't careful. So the native breeds now, people are starting to realise now that native breeds... They're here for a reason. They've been developed in a Pacific area because they're suited to that environment. And so instead of putting in a continental cattle in the new forest, put a ruby red devil, although it's a couple of counties along, they're more suited to our environment. They cope with the wet, they cope with the food conditions. We had that drought when a lot of the grass was, was virtually burnt off. They never lost condition the whole time. They still kept their nice rounded stomachs, their fat on their backsides, they never lost it. How? So, well, they, they, they process it. It's the development of the stomach and how the stomach works wow. <clears throat> and how they, they, they forage and how they graze. What they tend to do is if, if they can't get the grass in a particular area, they'll go and start pulling off sort of branches off, off the beech trees or anything else they can find. They, they've got this intelligence to go further. Instead of just standing there right. bellowing to say they're hungry, yeah. they'll go out and forage and they'll look for it and they'll move around. Yeah, well, they've um, got a big patch to play in, I suppose. Yeah, got- and when you say Ruby Red Devon, these, you know, you talk about being bred for an area. So these are mm. bred specifically, it's not UK native. This is literally regional. And you, you yeah. have you got the same? Have you got yeah. pockets of regional cows across the country? Everywhere you go, you, you have your own cow with that particular area. Yeah. So you go to Gloucester and there's a Gloucester cow, a right. cow with a white stripe down its back. And where the Gloucester cheese originally first came from, that creamy cheese that yeah. was traditionally from a Gloucester cow, high, high buttermilk fat content. So wherever you go, you have these regionals. You've got obviously the Angus that came from Scotland. You've got the Galloways, the belted Galloways, again, that come from Scotland. So all over the whole of the country, you've got your own native animals that okay. came from that particular region. Okay. What are they? So they're not a species. The species is cow. What are they called? They're regional Yeah, they're just a breed, a regional breed, breed. breed. yeah. Breed. yeah. How many would there be then? Yeah, not, oh, I'm not looking crikey. for a specific you, number, but you're you, talking you're hundreds, th- th- ten, th- dozens? Yeah, or? probably 30, 40 plus. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, each area developed its own breed. And it developed it because of the conditions in that area. Yeah. So the cow was specific to cope with those conditions. And this would be over what time period? Hundreds of years? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 1600s, 1700s. It, it, it gradually breeds broke away. I mean, you have things like the Dexter. Well, that came from Ireland originally. Yeah. You know, small cow was developed for the small sort of crofters in Ireland to cope with. So the animals also broke away originally too. At, at, at one point, they were sort of dairy animals or multi-purpose animals. They produced milk and beef. Mm. But gradually, some of the breeding has pushed them either towards the dairy side of it or the beef side of it. Um, the ruby reds were also used as, um, as, as ox for, for pulling the plough. <laughs> They used to work in pairs. They've got big shoulders on them. Right. You know, so they were multi-purpose. And in days gone by, they used to keep these ruby reds for maybe four to five years, pulling a plough or a cart or whatever. And the end of five years, they fattened them up and ate them. Right. So a bit of a dual-purpose yeah. thing, really. Okay. And how long would yours live for before they were sort of, you know, go to the... Um, well, I've got a cow out there Richard. that's now she's 11 and she's still producing calves. Right. So before she carries on producing calves, she, she'll be staying. Yeah. Um, the... Cattle steers for the, for the beef um, have to go by 36 months. They've okay. got to be under 36 months. Why? Well, a bit of a really dark time, but we had the problem with the mad cow disease. Yeah. And it was found that, that cattle develop it generally after 36 months. Right. Um, 
so what we do now is that cattle, are, although mad cow disease seems to be sort of completely gone now, thank yeah. goodness, um, under 36 months. Right. Yeah. And, and over a certain amount as well that you would generally, like how long would they need to grow for? Well, no, I mean, they, they will be ready by 36 months. They'll be right. fit enough to kill by 36 months. But after that, um, no, they have to, they, they still go. Yeah. But there's a lot more, right? But so thirty because because again in the intensive system it's about fifteen months I think isn't it? So presumably over thirty six months. It, be honest with you, it comes down to the size of the animal. Yeah. If if I've got an animal that 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 twenty four or you know, twenty eight months, yeah, that's fit and yeah. ready to go, you you've got to know your stock to right. know when they can be ready at that point. The cattle themselves, when you, when you look at a cow or look at a steer ready to ready to be off, sent off to beef, you can look at its back end. And what you want is just a nice covering of fat over the back end of it. You want the, the size of each side of the tail to be up level to the top of the tail, nice round rump to it, nice shoulders, nice width to the shoulders. So you've got to look at your cattle and you've got to be able to judge when it's ready to go. I say it could be two and a half years, it could be two years. It, it depends on the animal and how it's doing really. Right. So we ended up, it sounds a little bit like the kind of mono problems we've had with uh, monoculture of some of our crops, I suppose, and the, and the impact that's having on the environment with, uh, I don't know, just sort of dominating huge swathes of land, I guess, and then, you know, the kind of pesticides and growth. And, and, and it feels a little bit like the same. We, you know, we kind of did it with beef. We bought in the continentals or whatever particular mm. species because they were very efficient. Um, is this a case that we're going back a little bit more now to this to this regional? And is it is it realistic? You know, can, can you do that enough to feed the number of people that need feeding. Because sometimes it feels like we're making this compromise on this intensive farming system. And the argument for it is we've got a lot of people to feed and that's the only way to do it. Realistically, if we went back to these kind of grass-fed, smaller herds, local cows, can we can we feed everybody that way? Yeah, I, I think we can. Um, I think over the years we, we've had things imposed like set aside when acres have been taken out of production. So looking at it, farming has gone to the point where it was overproducing. We're now scaling back. So I think it creates a much more better place for looking back at native breeds. We're starting to realize now what's going and what's missing. The native breeds were, were dying out. I mean, we, we keep saddleback pigs, so it's not just the beef side of it, it's the pig side of it too. But those breeds were dying out. They, they weren't about. And it's just taken a realization that, hang on a minute, we now want flavor. People are looking for better texture, better quality. And there seems to be a massive trend now that people are moving towards that. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to gear up towards that trend. And hopefully that trend is going to continue. You've got the famous chefs on television. Um, we have a cottage, etc. All extolling the virtues of home-reduced meats and home-reduced food. And people are looking up now and saying, well, actually, I wouldn't mind a piece of that. I wouldn't mind doing that. And what I've always said is that spend a little bit more money, buy a decent joint of beef or a pork, and have something that's got a flavour to it. You don't eat meat then every day of the week if you don't want to. You don't have to do that. And obviously it's advertised that you shouldn't. But spend a bit more money from that Sunday roast and buy something that's a bit more local, a native breed. And I think once you've done that, I'm pretty sure you'll never go back. Mm. So I, and I don't think that's um, just because of flavour. I think for a lot of the motivation for people is animal welfare. So I think they're just yeah. looking at it and go, yeah, actually rearing a cow in a barn for 15 months and feeding it grain is, is, is yeah. not a pleasant experience. Yeah. Whereas yours... I mean, having the, the, the new forest to roam through uh, is fantastic, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the free range. Mm. You know, they, they, they graze on what they want, on the herbs, the different grasses out there. Completely free range. The 
I think I think what it is at the end of the day is is that people also like a story behind what we're producing. The other day I, I was um, I was shopping with the wife in Winchester and had a phone call from a local butcher, one of the butchers I supply. Had a lady in the shop asking what breed of pig that my pork was on the counter. Right. I could tell her. Yeah. And also I could also tell her almost exactly which pig and which batch it was that went. Yeah. And she was chuffed to bits with that. You know, and that's what people like. People like the story behind it. They want to know that it's been reared, like you say, properly. Yeah. You know, it's been fed properly. It's had a cracking good life for the time it's been here. And that animal is the it's reflected in what you get from the animal. The better life you give it, the better your product's gonna be at the end of it. Yeah. You know, it's simple as that. You look after it well and you you have to do it the the ultimate justice, because you've got to eat it. Mm. That's unfortunately that's what it's there for. But at the end of the day, if you look after it well, then that product that you have at the end of it is absolutely going to be superb. And what's the so so again? You've got the kind of uh, people I suppose who would say no, you don't need to eat the animal. But actually, the benefit of having the animals on the forest is is uh, interesting. I think, isn't it? Because yeah. there's people who say no, yeah. you know, we just just don't eat animals. Yeah. But actually, the flip side of that argument is you need the animals to manage the yeah. land. What benefit do they bring then to the forest? And what would happen to the forest if you didn't have this kind of uh, yeah? I think if you don't cut your lawn for three or four months during the summer and have a good look at it, that's what would happen to the forest. It'd be overgrown, the gorse, the shrub would take over. You wouldn't be able to walk, you wouldn't be able to cycle, you wouldn't be able to walk your dog in it, ride your horse through it. It becomes absolutely impenetrable. But like I said earlier on, though, that it's for the habitat that's developed from it, from the hundreds and hundreds of years of commoning, We've got the plants, we've got the bird life, we've got everything else that comes to the forest now. Purely a fact because it is grazed. Simple as that. So at the end of the day, although it benefits us, we animals, you know, grazing the forest, it, the general public and anybody else that comes to enjoy the park, the animals have to be there for them to enjoy it like it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, um, you mentioned uh, pork as well, and you've you've got some specific breeds that you, I suppose, you've got the traditional heritage breeds, the rusty reds, but you've also got this slightly more modern approach to going with pigs. I was reading something about longer backs. Can you just explain that sometimes there is a need to? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think although I'm very much traditional breeds, we still have to encompass a little bit more of 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 the modern side of it as well. So we have saddleback sows, Hampshire saddleback sows, right. Uh, Great big sows. They've got a white band over their shoulders. Um, very docile, very milky, producing lots of piglets and, and a good size. And they do very well on the forest. What I then do is I cross it with what we call a land race, which is slightly more of a modern breed. It's a white pig. It's a, a big boar. They have longer backs, slightly more rounded back ends, because obviously that's the expensive meat in, in the back ends. So what we then produce, we produce what we call a blue pig. Now, these piglets have got like almost like grey-blue spots on them, but they have the characteristics of the land race, which is the long back, obviously long back, more pork chops, but they have the hardiness as well of the saddleback. So they grow quickly, they do well on the forest, they forage, but they have also the quantity of meat on them. So we, we mustn't lose sight, although we're still looking at native breeds, we mustn't lose sight that we're still a commercial farm in many ways. We still have to make a living. So what I don't want is a, a piglet that's going to take years to reach the size to kill. I want something that will grow, but still retain its flavour, still retain the hardiness, but still have slightly some modern characteristics to make it grow a bit quicker. Right. 
Okay. Um, and then same with sheep. Was one. I, well, what blew me away with sheep that I was reading is, is how little you get for a fleece, for the wool of the sheep. Why is it so... Well, how much is it? 20 it's, pence or something? Oh, crikey. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's 20, 30 pence a fleece. Why, is it, why is it so little? I thought, I thought wool was... Is it, is it particular types of wool that are good? It's we, we've basically the wool industry in the UK is now completely gone. Really? You know, we, obviously the mills that used to be here and that sort of thing that doesn't exist anymore. It's something that that the price has dropped and dropped and dropped. Although there are some sheep that have much better fleeces that right. will fetch a little bit more money for maybe for carpets that sort of thing. But it doesn't even cost the, the price of shearing them. If I bought if I had a shearer come in. I get charged over a pound a sheep to have them shorn. Right. I get 20 pence a fleece. Yeah. It, it just isn't worth it. And do they have to be, certain sheep have to be uh, shorn, do they? Yeah, well, what, actually what I've done, and, and one thing about farming is that you should never stand still. You should yeah. always look at different ideas, try different things, different thoughts. And there's a breed called the Wiltshire Horn. Yeah, I had a look on the website. Sheep. What a handsome breed that is. With the, oh, they were fantastic they with the horns. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they're originally up on Salisbury Plain, I think originally came from. Right. So they're quite used to living out in, in, in quite wild conditions. But they don't need shearing. Right. They almost have hair instead of fleece. But they're still a nice big big ewe, good good size, good frame, which is what I'm looking for, obviously, for, for the lamb, for, for, you know, for the meat side of it. But they, they are very, very hardy. So what I did this year, um, it's an idea I've had for a while. I went out and bought only just half a dozen. And I thought this year, I'll try them out in the forest. I've got them on the farm now. They're in lamb now. Try them out in the forest, just see how they get on, really. You, you've got to experiment. As I say, you mustn't stand still. Always think of new ideas. Always try something different. Because you never know it might work. Yeah. If it doesn't work and they're not suited, I haven't really lost anything. I can send them back and sell them again. Right. But... It's worth a try. And what would define their suitability? How they cope being out in the forest on their tod, basically? Yeah, I've got to look at foraging. their condition. Yeah, make sure they don't lose condition. Right. Um, their <laughs> eating ability again. Yeah. Come on, make sure obviously the, the lamb's going to be good quality and, and good enough and go onto the table. But also say condition-wise, so to make sure they can forage well on the forest yeah. and they do well. At the moment, they, they're looking good. They're doing very well. Um, obviously... Pretty wet and horrible at the moment, so anything that's doing well at the moment should be okay in the spring. But I think they'll do well. And if what I do is I'll probably put them maybe onto a ram, maybe a, a Texel, which is like a, a slightly heavier meteor type sheep. And then the lambs I should get off them should grow fairly quick, do well in the forest, and hopefully eat well. Right, amazing. And then just to go back to that shearing thing. So I said, so do, with normal, well, I said normal sheep, but do, 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 why do you have to shear them? Is well, it, the, the fleece just keeps growing. Right. And um, the other thing as well is it, during the summer months, you imagine the poor thing with, like, with, a, with a fleece on it. Okay. It's so it's as simple as that. It's just but also, yeah, hot. but also from the welfare point of view as well, because during the summer months, we get what we call fly strike. Right. Um, so if a sheep's got long fleece on it, these flies will lay eggs, and there's nothing worse than seeing a poor sheep that's got maggots. It's, yeah, it's pretty horrible. Okay. So that makes sense. That, that Yeah, it's got to be done. So if you yeah. can get a sheep that doesn't need shearing, that's happy in the forest, and it, yeah, everyone's and to be honest, a it saves me that pound of, I mean, although I shear myself, but it would save me a pound of time to have yeah. them shorn yeah. to produce a fleece that's virtually valueless. Yeah. still feels disappointing that there's no, that there's no, know, there's no yeah. market for those fleece. So, someone asked the other day, is there any way you can make, make teddy bears or dolls or something? That's an awful lot. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's just a real pity. It is. It yeah, really it seems, is a pity. I mean, there's there's strange. a move at the moment though to use it for insulation. 
Oh, really? In lots okay. of things Actually, like that. Actually, you get a lot of wool lamb because there's a big growth in stuff going through the post, isn't there? Yeah. So I know lamb's wool is being used as a, as a environmentally friendly yeah. uh, insulation, isn't it? Yeah, for, so for meat from fish through the post and stuff like that. Hopefully, there may be a, a market gradually that will develop. From yeah, that. different to the mill, uh, to the to the uh, yeah wool, wool mills, I guess. Fortunately, I think one things are gone, they've gone, and unfortunately, that's the same with the mills or anybody else. Really, mm. once they shut down and close, that that's it. Yeah. The market's closed for us. Yeah. Surely we can. Build a new one, but I suppose wool, yeah, comes from elsewhere. Anyway, mm. I'll go off on another <laughs> tangent. Let's stick on this, which brings us to the New Forest Mark, actually. So yep. there's lots of uh, production. There's lots of stuff happening in the New Forest. I guess historically, uh, as you said, a lot of meat would just go into the meat supply chain and you wouldn't even say it was a rusty red, let alone where it had come Ru- from. Ruby but red. Ruby red, thank you. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was just looking at my especially this going, I'm going to get this name. <laughs> With the rain. Well, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, it's looking out the window and seeing the pouring rain. Um... So yeah, what's the New Forest Mark? How long's that been, right. and is that is that a useful thing? It's yeah, it's the New Forest Mark have, have helped in in many ways. Actually, I've been with them for a number of years now, um, and I'm having building work done on the farm to expect. I cannot produce enough with what I've got at the moment. So having new barns put up at the moment, I need to produce more because I cannot meet the demand. The New Forest Mark have branded my meat so people can recognise it. You go to a butcher shop and you will see the, the blue logo on there. You know it's local. You know there's a story behind it. You can even produce, talk to the producer. If you look up in there on the website, you can get the telephone number and you can actually ring the producer up and find the story behind it. So what it done is built a recognised brand for me that people know and they're asking for. The butcher that I supply, the, the main one down in Wimborne, has various different signs up and banners up and that sort of thing. And people look for it now. And that's really, really helped us in many, many ways. That's awesome, isn't it? So without that, quite possibly, your dad telling you to go off and get a digger's licence and be a builder would have would have stayed yeah. relevant. It's only because we're going back to that yeah. smaller farming yeah. and, and recognising. I've spoken to other farmers who say the same, that all too often their product just disappears in, yeah. uh, anonymous, anonymous, goodness me, anonymously into the food chain. Um, whereas if you can, yeah, if you can, if you can brand it and be known yeah. specifically, that's, um, that's great. Yeah, and and so, so when, when people actually ask for it now, which, which is superb, it's, it's done a great job for us, and it also it, it does help us be more competitive, command a better price. I I can't compete with farms maybe north of Salisbury, the huge farms up there. We're only a small farm, but by producing a niche product that's marketed as a niche product. People look for it, and it makes my farm farm reasonably profitable. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I would never be here. Okay. And what sort of difference are we talking in, in percentage terms that you would need to uh, to farm in the way that you farm on a smaller scale for lots of benefits that we've talked about and reasons yeah. that I love? Are you talking about a 10, 20, 50% more that you need to charge for your meats no, to be able to cook that? I mean, we're only talking of small margins. Really? Um, I'm only talking perhaps another 10, 20% more. Right. Um, but I think and what you'll find is... the world of difference. Yeah, and... That 10% or 20% more is offset by the lack of shrinkage in your meat. Yeah. You put that pork joint in the oven and cook it, I can guarantee that you buy a pork joint from a supermarket, you're going to lose 10 or 20% in, in shrinkage in size. Mm. So though my product might be slightly more money, you've still got the same size meat out the oven is what you put into it yeah it'd be nice to think that the consumer was willing to pay that extra 10 or 20 percent partly you say it's a no-brainer because they're getting more anyway but also just to support you know a much better farming yeah. system and process yeah i mean there's, there's a lot like me there's other commoners all through the forest that produce this this meat and you know and, and different products i think what we've had before the problem was we had before maybe in the 80s is that we were we were 
you get a huge influx of meat from maybe the Norwegian, Denmark, especially Denmark, and pork prices would drop and plummet. You couldn't guarantee next week to the following week what price you're going to get for your pigs. I mean, I remember at one point for what we call wieners, which are piglets who have just come off the sow, £2.50 each for them. And that doesn't even cost a bag of feed for them. So we were, we were at the mercy of huge influx of, of, of different meat and things coming into our country. Now, with the New Forest Mark, the prices are stabilised. I can forecast now what I'm going to get for my pigs eight months, ten months down the line, because we have a set price. I've, I've got an agreed price with my butcher on what I'm going to get for my pig. And he says he wants four or five fortnights. I make sure I can do that for him. But I actually can forecast now ten months down the line, which in days gone by, you could never have done. Mm. And the same with the beef. We, we get a, a premium for our beef as well. And I get a guaranteed price for my butchers. It's something I've negotiated with my butchers and I get a guaranteed price for them. So again, I, for the first time ever, we can forecast to the future mm. what we're going to get for our products. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And not an unreasonable expectation because it's, you know, these, these things aren't yeah. the sort of things you produce on a daily basis. It takes months, if not years, yeah. to produce. So at the, the end of the day, you know, we're our business and, and we need to survive and we need to look at the books. How, it doesn't matter how much I love farming, if I'm not sat here and I don't make a little bit of money, then I might as well be working cleaning the streets because yeah. I could earn more money doing that. But at the end of the day, we still have to make a living. We still have to make you know a reasonable bit of money in our pocket because we wouldn't be here. Mm, absolutely. And, but it also has a benefit on the forest and the you know the, yeah. now the national park and yeah, visitors they, they, to the park. They, there's there's a wind situation all around. Is there? Um, you say that demand has grown, which is great, and there's some consistency, and you're expanding, which is brilliant. Is there a limit to how far you can expand based on uh, the fact that you're a commoner and the, la- and the and the animals go out onto common land? Does that put some restrictions on what you can do? Or? Yeah, basically, what it is, we 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 can turn out as many animals as we got. We call backup grazing. So, if for any reason the animals have to come in off the forest, I've got to have enough grazing to accommodate those animals. So I can't put out more animals than what I can reasonably have back at the farm. Right. So that restricts, obviously, the number of animals you're, you're then going to put out. Okay. Yeah, just based based on, on size, because you can buy feed in, presumably. Yeah. So it's not, I, it's I, not I, like I there's enough grass growing. I could great shed like yeah. you said, and feed them grains and concentrates yeah. and, and cram them full of animals, but that's not how we work. Okay. The idea is that, that we have enough gra- natural grazing to bring those animals back in off the forest if we need to. Fine. Is, is there other accreditation? So are there, I'm thinking New Forest Mark. Are there not all New Forest Mark beef would be commoner necessarily, but does it exclude, I mean, I don't know if there are any big kind of industrial mm. farms in the forest, I suppose, but w- would it exclude them if it did? Are there other qualifying criteria? Or? Yeah, well, basically what it is, the, the New Forest Mark are, are quite strict in the criteria you have to meet to, yeah. to be members of the mark. So our animals have to be sort of bred or kept on the forest for a certain amount of time every year. So what you can't do is you you can't go to a market and buy something, shove it in a shed, and then put it out and call it New Forest Mark. Right. It has to be kept for a certain amount of time yeah. in the forest. And I think that's very important because we've got to, you've got to, like you say, we've got to have trust. Yeah. The consumer has got to trust us as farmers. And I want to turn around and say, look, you know, this animal was bred on the forest. That's what it is. It's a quality animal. And that's what we need to make sure happens. So the New Forest Mark are very, very careful of who become Mark members. And the product has got to meet their strict criteria. So I say, trust, so, but trust it could be lots of different breeds potentially. But at the very least, it, it has it to could. have been. Yeah, be honest with you, it, it doesn't matter whether a saddleback pig or a large white or whatever it's going to be, as long as it was bred and been out in the forest, 
yeah, and kept within the forest boundaries, then it's suitable to be new forest mark. Nice. Okay. Um, a lot of members of that has grown quite a lot. It has, yeah, yeah, it's it, year on year on at the moment. So I, I sit on the, the New Forest Mark board, right. and yeah, we consider applications constantly. Actually, so it's it really is something that's that's doing very very well. Yeah, and again, I, I think it's just following the, the general trend of of people wanting local and stories behind their food. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Okay. Um, other accreditation, so I'm thinking organic as an example. You presumably can't say that your uh, animals are organic, even though they're out in the wild and in the, no, in the new see, forest. See, is that see, correct? See, because yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purpose, we 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 could be called organic. Yeah, you know, we we all the animals depasteurize on the forest. There's no fertilizers, chemicals used on the forest. So yeah, it, it is. Um, I the soil. I mean, the soil associations obviously who gives you organic status, and the farm itself could be called organic. It's, it's certainly, or we could go through the accreditation period to become organic. I personally don't think it's going to do any benefit to me what I do. Mm-hmm. I think my main benefit is is being the new forest and being new forest mark and promoting that side of it. Mm. My animals don't have. Well, we're not allowed to have steroids. I would never dream of it anyway, or any other growth enhancers. We're not allowed to do that in the UK. And they're grown naturally. And I produce a product that I would feed to my eight-year-old without any qualms whatsoever. And if I can feed my eight-year-old on this meat and what I produce, then I've got no no thoughts about not selling it to the public because yeah. I know it's, it's fantastic food very, yeah. very safe. I think the reason I ask is I think it's interesting with all these different accreditations and I suppose it's slightly confusing for the consumer I mean in essence all food was you know didn't need to be labelled you know organic something that we've bought mm. in to kind of cope with the fact that some food is produced uh, in, in, in not a great way um, so it always seems a little bit ironic that sometimes people who are producing food as you are you know, in a very traditional way in a very good way can't uh, necessarily get that accreditation but it's unnecessary so it's, it's almost better than organic isn't it it's, it it's is, kind of how yeah. food yeah. was originally grown yeah. where it originally it's, came it's, from it's the same that's been um, produced for hundreds of years yeah it's exactly the same and it's and it's a, a i say a product that that with the new forest mark has helped us make it a recognized product and that's yeah. what we really wanted if you look at the, the new forest mark website and you'll see lists of producers on there where you can buy any of this meat new forest meat right you know new forest mark and there's other products. There's poultry, ducks, eggs, you know, whatever you like on there, but all local. It's well worth looking up. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Um, and as well as New Forest Mark, the other thing we touched on is the fact you are uh, a national park. I imagine that that brings both opportunities and challenges, does it? Is it is it overall? Is that a good thing? What, what are the difficulties yeah, it creates? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at it that there's always pros and cons. And I think the national park side of it has given us a lot of things, a lot of sort of pros there are some drawbacks. Um, house pricing is one. House house prices down in National Park. I think we're the highest average for house price in the whole of the UK in the National Park, which makes it difficult for commoners, for commoning families, to, to stay within the forest. Also, I think it's a big draw. It draws a lot of people in, which in some ways is good. I mean, apparently we're going to have something like 17 and a half million visitor days of people coming to visit the forest. We're sat between Bournemouth, Salisbury, Southampton, huge areas, all being built on rapidly at the moment. A lot of people come in. That creates a lot of pressure on us with our stock, because sometimes we do have conflict between the stock and, and the public. Very rare. Um, occasionally, a very, very small minority of people don't have the respect, maybe, for the forest they should have. They turn up, maybe, let their dogs run wild, loose their, 
set up picnics all over the place. But that's just one of those things. And, and we live with that. That's not a problem. The other spin-off is as well that if all these people do turn up, if they all spent a pound with us on local produce, what a boom to the economy that would be. Yeah, true. And that's what we've got to try and look at. Look at the positives more than the negatives. Let's try and move forward. It's not going to change. The situation is not going to get any better. We're not going to get less people visiting the forest. So I think we need to look at it that we need to work with them. Yeah. Uh, educate people, show people, talk about what we do, show them what we can produce. And if people can do that and we can work together, and the same with the National Park, if and it's working quite well, I find that working with the National Park and the National Trust, we're moving forward together. Yeah. They're helping me. This year I had a grant towards a cattle crush from the, the National Trust, you know, because it would help me with my stock looking after my animals. They want to see the commons grazed. And so what they've done is they they've helped me, and if they help me, then I'm willing to help them. So we work together. We've got to be more open, more open to the public, more open to the, the bodies around us and work together. Yeah, exciting in many ways, I suppose, like you say, isn't it? In the fact that there's so many people coming and you have got such a phenomenal product and the New Forest Mark helps with that. And and the more you can do, I think with this, we chatted about this when we were driving around, but you know, with the kind of climate emergency and people really wanting to know where their food comes from and they want to, they want to trust the food supply. And I think that's been destroyed a lot in the last yeah. 20 years. The more you can open it up and say, look, come down, have a look at these incredible spaces mm. where mm. they actually see the sheep and the pigs. I, I know people driving through the forest absolutely love the fact that they get ground to a halt yeah. because all of a sudden there's loads of pigs and sheep just crossing the road in front of them. It, it feels like a phenomenally unique yeah. space, doesn't and, it? And I think also with, with the, the commoners themselves, I've I've got nothing to hide from anybody. Yeah. If anybody wants to turn up, and, and I'm willing to show people around and talk about it. Yeah. And I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to be more open with ourselves. Up to now, farming has been very insular and reclusive. We, we've pulled the drawbridge up and we, we've shut the gates. Mm. And that stereotypical image of, of get off my land type almost expression, Yeah. that has got to change now. We've got to be more open and yeah. we've got to show people what we do and why we do it. And a lot of people, if you show people what we do and why that situation does or why we do this, people understand. You know, people follow it and say, well, okay, I do get that. Mm. And if we can do that, then it's all going to yeah. help us. Yeah, and I think it's essential, really. We chatted before to me about the BBC show that went out and the kind of images you see of the Amazon rainforest being cut down and these huge, intensive kind of uh, cattle farms out in Argentina. And, so, and yet you are such a world away from that. Unless you open it up and let people come and have a look, you're going to get tarred with yeah. the same negative brush. Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, the, the, we've had a quite a lot of bad press, maybe, over the last year, at least. Mm. And... People need to understand that, that that we're not, we don't have cattle lots. We, we don't have millions of cattle shut in sheds. You know, our animals are, far, like you say, far removed from that situation. We try to produce a quality product with what we've got and in the area we've got. We're not trying to intensify it. We're trying to produce a really good animal and best of our ability. I'm proud that, that, that when I... In some ways, when one of my animals go, goes off to go to the, the abattoir and then go to the butcher, I do get attached there. There's no word about it. I, I mean, some of the cattle and that. But when that animal comes back and the butcher phones me up and says to me, that was a fantastic piece of beef, you know, or that was a lovely piece of pork and people are queuing up to come and buy it. That's my pat on the back. That means I've done my job well. And that means that animal's been looked after. It's had a great life. And now it's had the ultimate i suppose respect paid for it because people sit down and eat it and enjoy it and, yeah. and that's all we're asking for
Yeah. Again, going back in time, I suppose to eat, you know, eat eat uh, eat better, eat less, eat better. Um, but do yeah, do have some respect, I guess, isn't it? We got so yeah. used to ridiculously cheap bacon in particular. I'm thinking, yeah. and the sort of Danish bacon coming across, and it just being so cheap. And and there was a lack of respect, I think, because we just tuck into it all the time it and not think about it. Mass production. It, it was cheap and yeah. mass production. But I, I do, uh, yeah, hope that we get back to that. You know, if you're going to have a joint of beef and it's a it's a Sunday and it's a special occasion and and, and it lasts a few days, that yeah, it. it feels in many walks of life i suppose that we should just have a little bit more um respect i guess um so yeah i guess uh the future really how do you see this going there there seems to be this and i I mentioned this earlier i was chatting to guy from riverford organic who Mm. who was kind of like you know things are getting worse and better at the same time i had a similar conversation with stephen lamb from river cottage funny enough you you mentioned earlier thinking about you know how does he foresee the future for his kids so on one side there seems to be this continuing and not just in food but you look at amazon and apple you've got these huge companies and then on the other side you you've got things like the new forest mm. mark mm. um so eight-year-old did you say is yeah. that your son yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. well how do you see this do you, do you think your eight-year-old son in in 20 years time will be you know doing what you're doing not not necessarily because you want him to I for respect tradition but where's on, it going to go on the farm at the moment we're putting up a new hay straw shed we're redoing a new cattle shed out. We're putting in new concrete in the yards. We're building up a, a new muck handling system. If I had any doubt on the future, then I certainly wouldn't be investing that sort of money in the farm. I personally feel that what we're doing is, is a model that will work anywhere in the country. Everywhere in the country, whether it's Dartmoor, Exmoor, or the Lake District, what those farmers or commoners in those areas produce is unique. More and more people want these nice regional local foods. And I think the way things are going with the the national community and everything else around us, people are going to start looking more at home and what we can produce at home. We need to build the trust up between ourselves and the public. And if we can do that, then I think the future is quite rosy in in, in many, many ways. I strongly feel that, that the native breeds were there for a reason. We produce a quality product from them. They're used to those environments from where they came from. So whether it was in the Southwest or we'll say up in the Lake District, we all have our own individual animals that have been bred to produce the best they can from those particular areas. And I think we're going to go from strength to strength. I, I don't have a problem with that. I feel now that, that what I've become is I've become a, a localist, not a nationalist. Yeah. I think with everything going on in the world and what's been happening with, with Brexit and everything else as well, I feel now that I'm more concerned about what's happening around me in my locality within the new forest. And that's my important, that that's what's important to me. And that's what should move forward. I don't, and it sound, I don't mean to sound flippant, but whatever happens in Europe or the rest of the world is important in many ways, climate change, etc. But I still feel that what's on your doorstep is the most important thing. And once you get that right, that spreads from there. And the rest of everything else will come like from from there onwards. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's been a recurring theme of a few conversations I've had recently about you know it's not ignoring the the importance of the international picture, but it's kind of saying look, start local and it will ripple yeah. out. If everybody yeah. worries about you know how they treat their neighbour, I suppose yeah, yeah, how you look after the animals, and, and the it, land, and it'll move from there, and it will go from there, out. and yeah, yeah, ultimately it spreads it yeah. spreads around ripples the world. On a pond. And it, it does feel like an exciting time to be going back to being great, not big. I think you know through the eighties and nineties we seem to have this inevitability of growth. I've certainly learned it 
in the restaurant sector, I guess, that you've seen the growth of these venture capitalist backed mm. chains and these huge, you know, four or 500 restaurants across the country. And it looks like the bubbles burst a little bit. And, yeah. and these weren't yeah. hospitality businesses. These were fundamentally, you know, backed by international kind of banks. And it was all a property play and a money play. And it would be lovely to think again, that people would get back to, you might need two or three restaurants, you know, I'm, I'm in Bournemouth mm. based and actually having, you know, having just one on the beach isn't necessarily a good idea all year round. Cause in the, in the winter, people don't want to go to the beach as much. So maybe have a couple, you know, one inland, one, yeah. one, one on the seafront. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I hope we get back to people having just, you know, two or three local yeah. things. And, and then, then that's great. And then when we travel and we go to our neighbouring uh, counties, you know, it, it continues mm. the adventure, mm. I suppose, doesn't it? So even just doing my research before I came to see you, I, I messaged Miranda, and uh, who, who helps produce the show and does some of the research and said, my goodness, you know, I think I'd love to be a commoner. There's clearly pros and cons um but what bit of your day-to-day life gives you the most reward what what's the reason that you've you have and you've got a genuine sort of twinkle in your eye Mm, and an excitement mm. for what you do what what's the key thing that you gives you the buzz i i look around and to see the cattle and the animals out on the forest on a on a on a warm spring day and just being out on the forest and generally there's not a person in sight You've got a mist coming up off off the hills in the back. There's nowhere else in the world like it. But to see your animals grazing and look at them, and I sounds like I've got a love affair with my cows. Actually, in some yeah, ways, I, I am well enough to say this. <laughs> but I, I look at them and I and I know they're the best I can do. Yeah. They are the best animals I can, be. and that means so much to me. To have those animals and to know how well and well fed they look. That's that's it, really. They're, yeah. they're, I don't think there's anything else quite like it in the world, really. You, you you can look at it, and to you, it's it's everything. I suppose if a builder builds a house and looks stands back and looks at it, he's got pride in what he does. I look at my animals, and I stand back and look at those, and I have pride in my animals that I produce, mm. and I know I've done them well. Mm. Yeah, and you can look people in the eye with that integrity and say, yeah, yeah I've, I've got no qualms. I've got no anything. I've ever nothing to hide. Yeah. I can stand there and say, look. That's what I do, and yeah. that's what I produce. And to be a commoner is is probably the best job in the world. Yeah, amazing. Well, I love it. Uh, that's a good that's a good place to end. You don't sell uh, direct uh, or have your own website, but where's the best place for people to go who want to find out more about? Look on the the New Forest Mark website. Go onto there. Go onto the producers. There's a section for producers. You can go down through that list. You can find lots of producers like myself that produce these sort of meats and, and other products. And also, what it is, they itemise places where you can go and buy them. Some of them do have farm shops. Um, my, my meat itself is sold predominantly through a, a Keating Butchers down at Wimborne. So you can get onto them. You can find out there from them where it's on. But yeah, go on the New Forest Mark website. It's all on there. Amazing. Okay. Excellent. Good. I will put the uh, link through to the website as well on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk. Um, so people can go there as well. But thank you so much for sparing the time. I'm a big fan mm. of the New Forest. I've traveled through it numerous times and to actually come and, and learn a bit more about its history and, and, and now to understand next time I'm being held up because there's a herd of cows crossing the road in front of me, which to be fair, always makes me smile. And I open the window <laughs> and have a little chat with them anyway. I will do it with a bigger smile on my face now, knowing about the commoners that are behind the scenes. It's a great pleasure. And I say, do come and see us. Do look up your local meat yeah. and give it a go. Perfect. And you'll be surprised. Thank you so much. No problem. That's great. Cool. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday